Welcome to Trying Days the Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Whitney Webb, a professional writer, researcher, and journalist since 2016. She has written for several websites and from 2017 to 2020 was a staff writer and senior investigative reporter for Mint Press News. She currently writes for The Last American Vagabond and UnlimitedHangout.com. Her Trying Day book, One Nation Under Blackmail, the sordid union between intelligence and organized crime that gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein will be released in February 2022. Whitney and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Likewise, thank you. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Whitney, so much for coming on. You've been having a hard time with life to a certain extent. You you got very, very ill, had to uh, move out of Chile and, and, and stuff like that. I know you have a, a, a strong relationship with a lot of your readers. And I mean, it's so exciting these days because, you know, when I was a kid, you could turn on the TV and the radio and, you know, you had, you know, you had three channels. You got to watch the news maybe, you know, once a day or twice a day and, and whatnot. And, you know, things have grown up. We've got 24-hour news stations and stuff like that. But we have the internet and, and what I've been talking about a long time is that, you know, we have a rise of a, of a new media where where people have taken it upon themselves. And, and, you know, like I say, one of my posits is that part of the dynamic that is happening is that the personal computer allows me to be a publisher. Then the Internet allows me to tell people about that. And so we, we have this growth of our, our own uh, media. You know, I mean, we're, we're able to do our own research and talk to each other and spread it around. And, and that's part of the dynamic of, you know, creating a, a, a new world, a better future for our children. So I'm just so happy to see that, you know, people are using this dynamic and we are getting a better world. We are getting a new world. So I, I'll get off my soapbox and thank <laughs> you, Whitney, very much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I definitely agree that the internet um, has allowed independent media uh, to rise, but it's also, you know, um, <laughs> come with its its challenges as well. Um, I certainly think that the reason that it's been able to be successful in that regard um, is because the internet uh, up until, uh, well, for most of its history has been relatively decentralized. But uh, in recent months, we've seen efforts uh, by uh, several governments and some uh, globalist entities like the World Economic Forum calling for global regulation um, of the internet and social media, um, things like that. So I think the powers that be um, are very aware uh, to the extent that um, independent journalists uh, taking advantage of these technologies present uh, a threat to their control over the flow of information. Um, and actually, as I'm sure a lot of your um, readers and listeners, you know, of course, are familiar with groups like the Project for a New American Century um, in their very controversial uh, document and from September 2001, uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses and the exact chapter uh, where they mention the New Pearl Harbor line. Uh, they also discuss in the context of the New Pearl Harbor, how that could be used to facilitate their domination uh, of a couple things, but one of those was the flow of information with the internet. Uh, and so there's been this longstanding agenda to try and, and sort of clamp down on this decentralized uh, aspect of the internet and use it to, to dominate the flow of information. So, you know, there are a few of us out there 
um, in different mediums. Uh, you know, you yourself being involved in, in publishing, uh, I'm involved in a different kind of media, uh, but we're all basically trying to uh, <laughs> fight against this system. And I think uh, our success has really uh, threatened them and they uh, may be too late, even if they attempt to pull the plug on this. I uh, like to view this optimistically and say, they're screwed, <laughs> but yeah, that's just yeah, my yeah. hope. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> There was a decision made by that gentleman in Switzerland when he put together the w, the World Wide Web. And one of those decisions that he made was, well, is this going to be more controlled and more monetized or is it going to be completely open? And he chose open. And so it's made it very hard for the powers to be to shut uh, the technology down. Yeah, they can uh, nip around it at the edges and, and, and do some things. And if, I mean, if they want to get very hard, they can, you know, like they have in, in, in certain countries. You know, uh, another thing, it, it's been a, a, a bit of a slow rollout to, to as far as air control. I mean, it was very interesting in, in uh, many years in the beginning um, on Google, uh, because I, I did one of the first stories about uh, George W. Bush and, and about his uh, role in Skull and Bones and stuff. And for uh, a long time in Google, my story was either number one or number two when you Googled George W. Bush, you know. But then uh, one day, all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> they de-indexed you, yes. <laughs> that, it, it's happened to many of us at this point. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And, and, and whatnot. So the uh, thing that you're following, you know, is, is something that has uh, uh, showed up in, in, in the researchers uh, for, for quite a while, this nexus of uh, honey traps and, and intelligence. And then, you know, once uh, intelligence, you know, gets, gets way in the shadows and, and they're able to uh, reach through the shadows and try and uh, control things, honey traps. I mean, it, it was so amazing when we were doing Franklin scandal and, you know, uh, we, you keep running into the FBI running interference for this uh, pedophile ring. And it just right to tear your, your hair out because the yeah. FBI is supposed to be the good guys, right? Yes. But, you know, unfortunately, well, as my original, um, a series on the Epstein scandal at Mint Press, uh, it went into detail about this. Obviously, the book's going to go into a lot more detail. Um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the <laughs> FBI, who uh, dominated that institution for many decades, its earliest decades, um, you know, and also was responsible for the leadership, choosing the leadership that succeeded him afterwards, uh, was compromised by this nexus of organized crime um, and intelligence uh, with sexual blackmail, pictures of him cross-dressing and all, and all of this, engaging in activities that were very uh, naughty for that period of time. Um, and so he never meaningfully pursued organized crime uh, to any meaningful extent. So you know, it, 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 it makes sense when you know the history, but that doesn't make it any less infuriating how, you know, in the decades uh, after Hoover left uh, the FBI that they continue to run, have continued to run interference for uh, not just, uh, you know, the, the, the group responsible for the Franklin scandal, but also um, the, uh, the finders cult, which was also, uh, you know, essentially a CIA front um, and suspected of being involved in sexual blackmail activity as well uh, with very young children. 
And then, of course, later on, uh, the Epstein scandal, in addition to other uh, espionage scandals that didn't involve <laughs> a sexual blackmail, the FBI, uh, more often than not, as I'm sure a lot of your readers are aware, is involved in, you know, was essentially the cover up agency um, of, of this uh, intelligence organized crime nexus that's really uh, the real seat of power in the United States. Um, you know, a, a really good example of that. I think that's relevant uh, to some of the things we're experiencing now uh, would be the 2001 anthrax attacks, the, in the, the main players of which have a lot of overlap um, with uh, the COVID-19 crisis, particularly um, the policies to respond to that developed in the United States under the Trump administration. Um, and that investigation, of course, was not meaningly for, uh, pursued. It was uh, denounced by the former lead investigators of the FBI who became whistleblowers and denounced the whole investigation as a cover-up. I mean, it can't get any more blatant than that. And so it's just something that's been uh, constant, really, in the FBI's history. Yes, indeed. Gosh, I was thinking of something and it just went away. Um, Bruce, you have a question here. Yes, Whitney, I recently heard your interview regarding the welcome leap. Mm -hmm. What would you what would you share about that, Whitney? Oh, well, this is, um, I guess, in the context of what we were just discussing, this is really uh, the consequence, you could argue, of, um, you know, the, the powers uh, that be never being held accountable uh, for anything over a series of decades leading uh, into the nefarious activities currently being practiced by this group known as Welcome Leap. Um, so essentially, the Welcome Leap uh, describes itself as a global DARPA equivalent, uh, allegedly for the purposes of healthcare and advancing healthcare around the world. But when you look at the players involved, it's very clear that they have no interest um, in actually improving uh, anyone's health around the world. Uh, this is because the people chosen to lead this organization um, are the uh, director, former director and deputy director of DARPA under the Obama administration, who very heavily advanced uh, DARPA research into transhumanist uh, technology, specifically brain machine interfaces um, and other technology aimed at uh, essentially merging humans and machines. Um, and they were basically headhunted out of DARPA and both brought into Google uh, to create a DARPA equivalent research agency for Google uh, that produced a variety of very Orwellian technologies, including smart clothing, a digital pill you can swallow that essentially turns your entire body uh, into a, an authentication token for your devices, uh, which is, of course, quite invasive, um, as well as a digital tattoo that can unlock your phone, among other things uh, that were considered controversial at the time and people that had been writing about technocracy for some time. And uh, subsequently, the uh, Regina Dugan, who was the director of DARPA and led this, this Google group who now leads um, Welcome Leap, was uh, again headhunted this time by Facebook and uh, set up uh, Facebook's DARPA equivalent, uh, then known as Building 8, which uh, was involved in creating this um, essentially a non-invasive brain machine interface. It's essentially a bracelet that professes to be able to read your mind, uh, essentially being able to read your neural activity from your wrist and knowing what you want to type before you even move your fingers. Um, very invasive a technology that obviously, um, you know, in the context of companies uh, like Google and DARPA being interested in this technology and also Facebook is also very interested in surveillance <laughs> to a significant degree. Um, so you have these people essentially leading this enterprise and they have done so um, with funding and the coordination of an organization called the Welcome Trust, uh, which a lot of people don't know about. 
Um, but essentially the Wellcome Trust is like the UK equivalent to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, in terms of its uh, massive funding for medical research and essentially driving um, medical research uh, in the UK and abroad. It's the largest uh, private medical quote unquote charity uh, in the United Kingdom um, and has an outsized influence over decisions that uh, according to UK newspapers have been shaping the future of the human race since the early 90s. The Wellcome Trust was created in the late 30s. Uh, by Henry Welcome, whose company Burroughs Welcome is now GlaxoSmithKline, uh, and was essentially set up to be a for-profit business masquerading as a charity, um, which of course is a, a phil quote-unquote philanthropic model, uh, later followed by the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, and others. Um, and essentially the direct, uh, the, the person at the Welcome Trust responsible for Welcome Leap is an individual named Jeremy Farrar, who appears in the Fauci emails recently released. Um, and his uh, communications with Anthony Fauci are among the most redacted in the entire collection. If you look at his past, um, as I note in my article, he's very clearly a, a narrative manager uh, for the powers that be when it comes to these events. Uh, having done so um, as far back as the avian flu in 2004, which previously was used by the U.S. government to fearmonger, uh, drive up the stock prices of Gilead, which of course um, Donald Rumsfeld at the time of, uh, of that scare uh, was heavily invested in Gilead and made um, a ton of money off of this uh, pandemic that went nowhere, uh, but was heavily uh, fearmongered within the media with Farrar's help. So Farrar has uh, been at the center of the COVID-19 crisis once again, um, but essentially welcome leap you know, those are the players involved with this uh, entity uh, seeks to do, you know, they have four programs, but two um, I found particularly disturbing because they basically involve efforts to uh, surveil and directly interrogate uh, what you are thinking, what they describe uh, as the human brain state in documents, which sounds uh, quite robotic, honestly, but basically, um, you know, basically efforts to see um, if you're engaging in, in wrong think or different types of activities that can easily be abused uh, by corporate America. But what's particularly disturbing is one program they have, which seeks to uh, do exactly that with children as young as three months old, from three months old to three years old, um, are the target of this particular program. And the goal of that program, there's a couple goals. The first one is to uh, map the minds of thousands upon thousands of babies and toddlers with the goal of developing essentially an artificial intelligence brain that mimics and models directly a developing human brain. And then once they have that model to go back and by uh, the year 2030, they want to have 80% of the world's young children have their brains uh, essentially, they say pruned, you know, uh, be subjected to intervention so that their developing brains match this supposedly quote unquote perfect uh, AI model, which has major implications for the future of the human race in terms of uh, what it could mean for human creativity and imagination and, and other things uh, by targeting, you know, our most vulnerable uh, people are, you know, developing very young children. Um, and the fact that they think they can do this, I think really suggests um, hubris and that they felt that they feel very empowered and essentially unstoppable because of things that have happened over the course of COVID-19, uh, where, you know, essentially uh, children uh, have been put up by parents as, as guinea pigs for experimental vaccines. Um, you know, children as young as six months have been included in these trials and studies. 
um, that don't even have long-term uh, safety profiles for adults, let alone for children. Um, and those, uh, you know, in, in some countries, including in Chile, which I recently um, had to leave, uh, you know, they're uh, essentially mandating vaccinations of teenagers already. Uh, with plans to do it with three years and older by the end of the year and stuff like that. So with uh, those trends, it seems like these people um, at the welcome leap think that by 2030, they can easily get access uh, to tons of children. And frankly, I think it's a, a very disturbing program and shows that a lot of the, the powers that be essentially have uh, moved on from COVID and are actively pursuing different types of technologies, uh, given what, um, you know, COVID-19 has unleashed. How do, how do you spell... Uh... Farrar, this, the, his last um, name. F-A-R-R-A-R. Okay, well, that's interesting. See, John Chipman Farrar was a member of the Order of Skull and Bones, okay? And he was in the uh, class right after Prescott Bush. And one of the things that, that he did was he came up with the uh, book, uh, uh, I Paid for Hitler by uh, uh, supposedly Fritz Dyson. Okay, and, and it basically has Fritz walking around saying, oh, I'm such a doomkopf, you know, I didn't know, but, you know, I, I, I did it. <laughs> and right. then, well. but after, after the war, Tyson says he knew nothing about the book. This book was, was basically a, a propaganda book that was produced to keep Prescott Bush's name out of the, out of the headlines because he had been, uh, you know, uh, his bank had been taken over uh, by the uh, government. Uh, going back just a little bit, uh, you know, we had Ari uh, Ben Menashe uh, on a podcast, and he talked about how they were very worried about having, you know, Clinton do what uh, Carter did, and they would be tied to this uh, peace process. Uh, so that's when Epstein Epstein was brought in to basically corral Clinton. Was yeah, to, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with Ari's claims. I actually wrote about them in December 2019. Uh, we spoke by phone uh, maybe a, a week or two before I published that article. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that that's the case um, because even though I wrote about this in 2019, mainstream media didn't catch on or release the images, for example, of Epstein's first documented meeting uh, with Clinton because it took place in the White House in 1993. Yeah. Uh, as part of a fundraiser for the White House Historical Association, the very earliest days um, of his presidency. Um, and somehow we're supposed to believe this picture that was released just a couple of months ago. No one knew of its existence until then, uh, when it was actually quite easy for me uh, to find that, that information uh, back in 2019. So, you know, looking for the, through the, the photo archives there shouldn't have been that difficult for mainstream journalists with that kind of access. You know, but even more recently, we're seeing uh, some of the quote unquote big name uh, Epstein journalists like like Vicki Ward, for example, now being like, oh, well, maybe Epstein did have some intelligence ties when he, you know, they essentially ignored the story back in, in 2019. I did a whole series on it and is now saying that, but, uh, you know, maybe he had ties to Israel leaders and things like this, um, somehow missing the fact that there was obvious, uh, obviously a documented relationship between Epstein and Ehud Barak uh, going, going back decades. Um, and of course, the same thing has uh, was attempted to be done with Bill Clinton as well. They wanted to keep the narrative about he and Epstein only knowing each other after Clinton had already left office and having the emphasis being on things like the Clinton Foundation and, and the Clinton family, quote unquote, philanthropy um, and, and Terramar and things like that, uh, not wanting 
to focus on the involvement of Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell um, with uh, members of the Clinton administration or having met with uh, Bill Clinton himself um, as far back as, you know, the earliest months of that administration. And there's actually a lot of history there. It's not even just this uh, first meeting with the White House Historical Association. Uh, it, you had Epstein visit the White House three times uh, in, the, in, in 1993 alone because of a relationship with the deputy chief of staff with the White House, who later uh, becomes under investigation um, for uh, allegedly obtaining uh, illegal foreign funds uh, for Clinton's re-election campaign, allegedly from uh, Chinese donors. Uh, but when he's asked if he uh, uh, sought out um, donors that were essentially uh, intelligence-linked figures to foreign governments, he pleaded the Fifth Amendment, uh, which he did, I believe, over 20 times in that hearing alone, uh, two questions about his fundraising activities for the Clinton re-election campaign. There's considerable ties there from uh, wealthy Clinton donors as well. For example, Lynn Forrester, who in uh, 2000, thanks to Henry Kissinger, met and then married Evelyn de Rothschild. So she's now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. Her ties with Epstein uh, go back to the early 90s when she divorced Andrew Stein and allegedly uh, asked Jeffrey Epstein for uh, unspecified assistance uh, <laughs> with that divorce. And she subsequently in 1995 wrote a letter to Bill Clinton saying, it was nice to see you at Ted Kennedy's house. I only had, uh, you know, my 15 seconds of access to talk to you about the most important things, which were Jeffrey Epstein and uh, foreign currency uh, prices and, and things like this. And of course, we know that Epstein was very involved in the manipulation, uh, or at least he bragged um, as being very involved in the manipulation of uh, foreign currencies and was frequently seen uh, trading foreign currencies at his various residences and offices. So it's fascinating that one of the, the, the top and, and closest uh, Clinton donors who maintained ties with the Clintons throughout his two terms and well after uh, was uh, heavily promoting Jeffrey Epstein to uh, the president in 1995 after they had already met two years prior. Epstein was at the White House. And of course, we have the testimony of the Epstein victim, Maria Farmer, uh, who was employed by Epstein from 1995 to 1996, uh, being told several times that she had to uh, vacate his New York residence because the president was coming and the only people allowed to stay were the underage girls and uh, the chef. And she told me, I believe this was in uh, early 2020, uh, that that particular chef who she called Chef Andy uh, was the holy grail of Epstein information. And then a week later, she sends me a press release that this chef had uh, died under very sudden, mysterious circumstances in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and of course is no longer accessible uh, for asking him information. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot that they're attempting to cover up in the 1990s. Uh, regarding uh, Jeffrey Epstein's activities. And that is not just with Bill Clinton. It's also a factor with Bill Gates. So the mainstream narrative with Bill Gates holds that they did not meet each other um, until the year 2011, which is, was, of course, by the time that Bill Gates was uh, leaving his chairmanship of Microsoft and was moving full time to his philanthropic activities in the same way that they tried to keep the narrative with Clinton, uh, you know, focused on their relationship after he left office and allegedly had waning influence over public affairs <laughs> and all of this, if you yeah. wish to believe that. 
So, but actually, um, you know, as I, I wrote about relatively recently, uh, there's considerable evidence that the ties with Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein go back to the 90s. And there's documented ties of Epstein's ties with uh, Microsoft's chief technology officer and Bill Gates' uh, top advisor, not only flying on Epstein's plane, taking Epstein to Microsoft Russia conferences, um, among other things, but also uh, being brought underage women by Epstein to his offices. Um, he was actually accused by uh, other alleged co-conspirators in the Epstein scandal, including Alan Dershowitz, of being involved in having sex with minors, the only Epstein pal that was accused by another Epstein pal of being involved in that kind of activity. Um, and it's amazing it didn't get more mainstream press because the chief technology officer of Microsoft is intimately involved, obviously, in the development of Microsoft products. Uh, you have the Epstein, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, working directly with the Maxwell family, uh, which was uh, responsible for the Promise software scandal, uh, putting backdoors in products. The fact that they could have, that, that there's clear evidence that there was some sort of compromise there with their chief technology officer is significant. And there's also two other executives that appear to have been compromised in the same period, one of them being a Microsoft vice president by the name of Linda Stone, who at some point uh, employs one of the women named by Virginia Giuffre, the Epstein victim of being a co-conspirator in the scandal. Kelly Bovino is her assistant for uh, unspecified reasons, because she's allegedly a model, why did she suddenly become uh, this woman's point of contact and secretary? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And then of course this VP uh, of Microsoft, Linda Stone, eventually insists that MIT start taking uh, money from Epstein despite his quote unquote tainted past, uh, saying, don't worry about his tainted past. Jeffrey Epstein is awesome, I guarantee it. Uh, which is quite over the top if you think about it, especially coming from a woman. Um, and in addition, Stephen Sanofsky was essentially, uh, we, we know that Epstein was essentially gifting several powerful individuals with women whose education he funded um, and who he, were, uh, before funding their education, would recruit them as models. There's a couple examples of this happening. And one of those women who also served as Epstein's science advisor after he uh, funded her medical school education, Melanie Walker, um, is first quote unquote given to Prince Andrew at the Zorro Ranch uh, and entertains him uh, in various um, activities. Uh, according to the housekeeper um, of Zorro Ranch, she asked uh, if she could have a tea that would make Prince Andrew the most horny. But then after she's quote unquote given, these are the words of the housekeeper, by the way, uh, to Prince Andrew, she's then passed off to this migrative executive, uh, Stephen Sanofsky, moves to Seattle to be with him and then starts becoming Bill Gates' science advisor, working directly for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's now a fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation. Like I said, do you have a spreadsheet <laughs> to keep all this straight? I mean, goodness gracious me. Yeah, the book's going to be quite long. Right. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot to cover.